The strong wind was howling and whistling. He was the first Chinese citizen to graduate from Yale University in the mid-19th century. I was born on the 17th of November. She had prominent features. Three of us were old enough to lend a helping hand. He navigated between two vastly different cultures and moved further to realize his dream and promote understanding between the people of China and the United States. Ye Mingxing was a native of Hanyang. I realized no danger. China is really awakening. Come and join us in discovering the incredible journey of Yong Wang in his autobiography, My Life in China and America. Check out the audible stories on radio.cgtn.com and all major podcast platforms. Just search for the podcast Books and Beyond and find My Life in China and America. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable, coming to you from Beijing. I'm your host Huang Shen, stepping in for He Yao. Good to have you on this ride. A variety of new professions have emerged, which have enjoyed rapid development in China. New industries and new businesses have constantly sprouted to meet the country's economic, social, scientific, and technological development. What skill sets do we need to thrive in this modern job market? In addition, these novel professions are more in sync with a more flexible working model instead of the traditional nine-to-five. So, will the gig economy capitalize on employees having more flexible work arrangements? And pharmacies and drugstores, with their convenience and value, are an essential source of health services, products, and information. When you want to purchase some medication, what's your preferred channel, online or offline? For today's program, I'm joined by Yu Shun and Tony Reid in the studio. First, on today's show, during the ongoing two sessions—that's when China's top legislature convenes—motions and proposals handed in by political representatives garner people's attention. A policy advisor recently suggests that the country should help employees in new occupations, improve digital skills, and open up a green channel to recognize these occupations to protect employees' rights and interests. How have these new occupations changed the job market, and how can we protect employees in these new occupations? To begin with, Yushun, can you fill us in? Why has this proposal attracted attention? Yeah, of course. In recent years, many new professions, especially these related to digital sectors, are on the rise. Right, according to a Xinhua report in October 2022, the Ministry of Human Resources and Social Security revealed that China has added 158 new professions to its list to recognized occupations since 2015. And this revised list identifies 97 professions related to the digital sectors. You know, I was a little bit confused when I saw the green channel. For some reason, I was thinking more like eco-friendly or、mm. you know sustainable、yeah. type jobs. So I'm, I'm wondering why it was why it's considered the green channel as opposed to other colors. But it sounds like a lot of these new jobs are going to be. Are more along the lines in the digital sector, right? And also, are these new professions something that's going to be like ongoing, or are these kind of like gigs? Because I think 
And these days, that line is actually getting a bit more and more opaque with the difference mm. between a full-time job and a gig because you could actually do both and make a living, right? Right. Yeah, to answer your first question, I think the green channel represents a very smooth transition and sometimes it's a broader and a fairer access to the employment. Yeah. So it's like a green light. These yes. professions yeah. are good and to make the whole process faster, I think. Oh, okay. Okay. Got it. <laughs> yeah. And, and also, I think new professions could be a very broad term. So if we focus on the term, what are some new professions that have caught your attention? Because there's so many. Like, are there anything that stand out? Uh, well, as you mentioned, there's a lot of different jobs. And um, for example, like uh, cryptographic engineering, have no idea what that wow. is, by the way, uh, carbon management and like financial technology. I think we're seeing a lot of these things coming up back home in the States. It's a little bit hard to define, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the parameters of what a like a career or a job is and a gig because gig indicates that it's something that's transient it's not going to be around a while it has a finite uh shelf life so to speak but when you're talking about some of these new professions a lot of people are doing them you know on a full-time basis so a broad definition of what a gig could be is something that i guess you could say you're paid by technological platforms and this is according to the u.s bureau of labor statistics they call it electronically mediated work. And this is in quotation marks. And it's, I think that encompasses a lot. It also goes on to say that there are 1.6 million gig economy workers in the US, which is, I'm not sure if that number is entirely accurate because as I mentioned, they, they normally indicate jobs that are like Uber, TaskRabbit, and um, maybe Airbnb landlords and, uh, you know, things like that, artists, things of this nature. But they, what they should include is like multiple job holders. And I can think of a lot of people who are doing, you know, holding uh, multiple jobs and contingent and part time seasonal workers, consultants. So, it, it, again, it's just it's really tough. And, a lot, and mind you, a lot of these jobs can sustain a very substantial uh, living. I have a sister who's getting into consulting. And she had like a three-day seminar and was paid like ten thousand American dollars for three days of work. Wow! So it's yeah. It's, so if you just imagine doing a few of these in a year, and you're probably making more than what most people would make at a nine-to-five. So I think that um, the, some of these new professions that we're about to get into could possibly um, have this type of potential for a lot of the uh, the new guys or the the graduates that are coming into the job, you know, the labor force. Uh, it, it looks it could it could be um, optimistic. Talking about the new professions in recent years, the first one coming to my mind is that the people who work online, mm. they do mm. live streaming, they do uploading videos on the internet, like YouTubers, mm. uploaders, influencers. They just they can make a lot of money out of it. And also another one is that the the buzzword recently, ChatGPT. It's we know that this year can also be called the like the first year of the booming of ChatGPT, right? Mm. And I think with the growing popularity of ChatGPT, maybe some repetitive content production and writing work will be replaced by these kind of new technology, but it will also bring some new job opportunities for people. For example, the skills required to develop 
and design and to maintain these kind of uh, AI systems. Yeah. Even in the future, there may be more needs to develop these kind of things. So I think in these areas, especially these you know digitalization and informatization things. There is a promising future in this area, I think. Well, they're going to have bugs, right? They're going to have certain things that they don't, they can't quite uh, interpret. It doesn't go, it, co- it falls outside of the algorithm or whatever. I just watched a movie recently where this person, that's all she did was just pick up some of the, the errors or the mistakes and deal with it from the clients. And, you know, it, I mean, there's a, a lot of things that happen in that film, but mm-hmm. I think that this could definitely as you mentioned inspire a lot of work but hopefully it doesn't process it doesn't get too smart and process out a lot of things i mean even people like us who do voice work and radio i mean if it gets too smart it could potentially uh, replace us (laughs) yeah chat gpt is one of the buzzwords in the tech field recently Mm. another irony here is that today we're talking about chat gpt and this could be one new field waited to be added into new occupation list and last year the buzzword was metaverse Mm. so back in 2022 i remember some people they became the avatar designer who help you to uh, establish and the design and custom made your metaverse icons or your Mm. image or your figure in the metaverse so i think you know technology is something that is like developing so fast we don't know which is the next hit thing so well if you want to find the next popular new occupation then i think you have to watch closely about the trends or the new possibilities in a particular field as i mentioned like emerging business trends right together with internet plus and information and all the communication technology they are shaping the way people work communicate and create and dispute value i would say such things they have helped create new occupations which will revolutionize the labor ecosystem but do you think such occupations could ease pressure on the job market i think it's tough because uh, as we mentioned you know a lot of these new these industries are new and they're you know they're burgeoning and they have a lot of potential and there are investments that are flowing into some of these industries but sometimes depending on what it is it could go very well as you know with um, a lot of different industries but then also there could be uh, ideas that don't go as well. And if you're in some type of industry that doesn't, um, it's projected to go very far and have a lot of potential in different areas, but it doesn't live up to that potential, then you're going to have to kind of look into other areas for work. So I think that could be also some pressure that people have going into uh, the labor field. And a lot of these new jobs haven't really fallen into that category as yet. So there could be a little bit of anxiety there because you don't really know how well this particular job or industry is going to go because it's brand new. And also just being stigmatized. Some of some of the things that we plan to be, for example, a doctor or you want to work and, you know, climb up the corporate ladder and be an HR manager or whatever that is. These are things that are stable and have been around for a long time. And your family, a lot of times is kind of pushing you into these areas and they're kind of gearing you for that career path. But some of these areas are still a bit new and a lot of people don't know the potential. So I think the pressure, if you tell your parents that you want to be a, a live streamer, 
they might look at you sideways and be like, mm. really? I'm saying I'm paying all this money to send you to school so that you can go online and just talk to people. I mean, I, if that's the case, I don't need to send you to college at all. You can do that. You don't need training for that. You know right. what I mean? So I think the stigma that a lot of these um, new uh, job roles have might be um, something else that could be could you know contribute to the pressure that a lot of people have going into them because it's uh, you know it's new and like most things that are new and um, developing there's going to be a few hiccups along the way. Yes, and also another thing is that I feel like every year there is a new record. We can see the news that okay this year we got a new record of the number of graduates and of course the rising number of job hunters in the market. Is one of the reasons that、um, even though we have more new occupations here, but there is still an issue that a lot of people is, you know, having trouble in finding a job.、Hmm. Yeah, so that's the reason why maybe some experts are suggesting that we should broaden our interpretation of an occupation. Maybe the majority of people still want to go with the very traditional and conventional career path, but if some people they're courageous enough to follow their dreams, their passions,、uh, to Create a new road, a new path for career. That's also something、uh, we should applaud for, and that's the reason why I think we should give them more recognition, especially social recognition and appreciation. These are the things that you can encourage people to be novel, to be creative, to、mm. be bold,、uh, in order to encouraging more people to choose a more diversified、uh, career path. I think in tandem with. Expansion of the new occupation list. The world has begun to embrace flexible working arrangements that accommodate these new careers. Especially during the past few years, the gig economy has exploded, and finding a balance between protecting workers' rights and encouraging employment in the gig economy is a complex challenge、mm. that requires careful consideration and collaboration between policymakers, industry leaders, and workers themselves. Well, for more on this, our very own Yu Shun spoke with CGTN radio reporter Li Yunqi, who is covering the two sessions on site about the proposals in this regard that have been made during the ongoing two sessions. Let's hear it out. So, Yunqi, I know that you have interviewed with several CPPCC National Committee members. Can you tell us what the topics have been heatedly discussed this year? So, some of the topics that I have been following. Are the issue with the migrant workers because China has a lot of population that lived in the rural areas, but it's always been a problem for these migrant workers to properly settle down in the cities that they work work for. And of course, there are some more niche topics like gig economy because、uh, with these smartphone applications growing, there's a lot of people that kind of quit their proper jobs and went to. The smartphone platforms, and they start taking like flex flexible jobs, like Uber Uber drivers, and in China's case, is the Didi drivers. And of course, there will be some more like broad discussions on environmental protection and what economic industries that we need to kind of、uh, prioritize with. Among these topics, I heard you talk about the one called gig economy, right? It sounds quite、right. new to us. Can you tell us more、exactly. about it? Yeah, exactly. So,、um, as a part-time musician before, if a musician says that they are going to be in a gig, that means probably this performance is one time only, 
And that kind of fits the case for this gig economy. So it's a representation for the kind of jobs that's not stable and permanent. So traditionally, we sign contract with a fixed company and we work for them regularly. And then you also have people that kind of like freelancing. They don't work specifically for one company and they have autonomy to choose when to work and where to work. But uh, with these kind of smartphone, with these smartphone applications and these new platform jobs, so now it's kind of between like a proper employee and a freelancer with a, lot, with a lot of autonomy. So this kind of job specifically, you don't have to be bound by the work hours. You can choose when and where you want to work. You can probably work just two hours a day. It depends on your flexibility. And uh, so these kind of jobs are called platform jobs and this kind of new niche economy that for people that are involved in this kind of job positions titles this is called a gig economy so the platform jobs refers to that they can get their job from the platform right so right that means certain couriers online car hailing drivers and i assume Bed and breakfast hotels are also some of the examples under the gig economy, right? It could be. So it seems like it is very easy to get started for people who would like to enter such area. Because as some of the relatively new professions, we can totally see that it is a huge market and huge industry. But I assume during the process of development, we can see there are like increasing reports discussing the legal rights of those quote-unquote employed by such companies, right? For example, the delivery man, it's kind of a job that between self-employed and employed by the company, right? Can their legal rights be protected? And yeah, can you tell us more in this regard? Yeah, I, I would say the core issue for all of this is the difficulty in defining what kind of employees they are because there are also people that kind of work full time. They work like 24 hours, uh, probably not that much, but they work a lot of time as a DD driver while we're just taking drivers as an example. Of course, there are many more other job types, but let's say so. it's very difficult to distinguish between a person that's working uh, three hours, two hours a day. And then there are also people that are working full, almost a full time, even though they call it this a gig job or flexible jobs. So it, it's difficult to find a fixed term or from a legislative uh, perspective to distinguish a person working two hours and a person working full time on these jobs. So I would say that's an underpinning issue that uh, kind of led to other problems that we see like social welfare, because in order for the companies to buy social insurances for these people, yes, these people, I'm not calling them employees because the companies, they need to cover social insurances for their employees. But what if this person only offers two hours of service every day? And what if it's only three or five hours every week? Are the companies still responsible for covering social insurances for these people? Yes, yeah, so a lot, lot of these problems that we see and hear about and an underpinning issue is the complexity to define, are these people employees or are they self-contractors? Then we can see absolutely some problems that we need to fix, right? Are there any proposals that have been offered in order to address these problems? Yeah, sure. There are many proposals being given because as we were speaking, this is a very niche industry and there are a lot of people that started working here. And I think if my, if my number is correct, that 
there is currently over 200 million Chinese that are working flexibly uh, by taking platform jobs in this gig economy. And so there are many members of the CPPCC that have proposed many suggestions on how to kind of better promote and develop this industry. So let's take uh, this proposal from a CEO of the cloud services in JD.com. So his name is Tao Pong. And if you are from China, then you probably know JD.com, they offer a lot of these gig jobs or flexible jobs because it is one of the biggest uh, online shopping platforms in China. So one of the suggestions in his proposal is the clarification of labor relations, yes. In the case of JD.com, they actually um, hire all of their delivery men, all the drivers as full-time proper employees. But this probably won't work uh, universally because they have more financial power to offer more benefits to their employees. But I would say there are dozens more smaller platforms or delivery companies and uh, it'll be difficult to put the same exact same requirement on every single company. And also there's one proposal from the All China Federation of Trade Unions. So it's, it's a union of workers. And this is already the third year since they started making proposals in this niche gig economy and protecting people that are taking platform jobs. And so they have a more focus on ensuring their safety and health because for people that are working flexibly if they only spend half an hour a day in providing services to, to these platforms how do we guarantee how do we safeguard that if something happened during their service it's going to be difficult to demand the exact same protection uh, as a full-time employee but at the same time it's an issue that we need to address so these are two examples of the proposals that have been made uh, this year at the CPPCC. Right, right. So we can see that there are some good examples in the industry, but still much needs to be done to close the gap between, I think, legislation and the gig economy, right, in order to provide clarity to both workers and companies alike, and of course, the customers, right? And we may right. begin to see this happening over the coming years with these proposals have been made. All right. Thank you, Ringchi, for your first-hand information. No worries. Nice speaking with you. That's Yushun, who spoke with DGTN radio reporter Liu Chi. In my opinion, gig economy is not that new. It has been mm. there for several years, but I think with emerging trends, demands, and people are adding a modern twist to this right. employment format. Tony, today we're still talking about what needs to be done to close the gap between legislation and the gig economy. I remember back in 2022, mm. in the wake of pandemic, the site hustle became more than an after-hours hobby or weekend pursuit for many employees in the U.S., your home country. As inflation is part of the reasons because like, it has increased the cost of everything from food to rent. 
more workers in America to call multiple jobs or side gigs to make ends meet. As a result, some savvy workers are using a tactic called overemployment to、mm. meet their financial needs and goals. Why are side gigs an attractive option for many workers, and how can their welfare and rights be protected along the way? Well, as you mentioned, this has been around for a really long time.、Yeah. I mean, my grandparents were working multiple jobs when you know in their day, so it's not a new thing. People just you know have been working multiple jobs. Sometimes it's because your current job doesn't pay enough. Sometimes you have a job that you need to work for stability, but you have a passion. You have things that you want to do, and so you do that. On the side, so I think that it's an opportunity for people to diversify, to get into the kind of work that you know, the lifestyle that they want to have, and find、uh, some happiness. So,、um, in terms of、uh, workers having rights and things, that, I think transparency is important. A lot of these companies that don't want to hire you as a full-time worker and give you the benefits, because let's face it, for a lot of companies, this is can be a, a huge burden on them because having to you know claim. A certain number of employees, you have, you're liable for them in terms of medical, you know, social insurance. So a lot of companies are offering some benefits, but may not cover, you know, what traditional companies cover. For example, Uber, if you're driving for them in the states, they will cover, you know, maintenance on your vehicle, your tires, and you get discounts on rides and the Uber Eats and、um, different things along that realm. And then they will give you discounts on certain medical plans if you.、Um, but you ultimately you need to set up your own、uh, medical insurance. So a lot of companies are offering. These different incentives, but you just have to read the fine print and make sure that this is something that you agree to. They do have full-time employees working at the company, but for drivers, the insurance or the the coverage is a little bit different. So you just have to, you know, make sure that you have transparency whenever you work for these particular companies. Yeah, I think all the companies at home and abroad they should catch up with this trend、mm-hmm. and come up with preferential policies or welfare、uh, improvement strategies. Yeah. To protect the rights of employees taking part in gig economy. Absolutely. It's roundtable with myself, Hong Shan, Tony Reed, and Yu Shun. Stick around, everybody. We'll be back after the break. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with me, Huang Shen, joined by Yu Shun and Tony Reid. Welcome back, Tony. Where have you been? I think our <laughs> listeners—they are missing you, of course. And when you're not on Roundtable, where our listeners can find you?、Uh, these days, I'm on a show called Pop Muse, and、um, we pretty much do a pop music trivia show. Most people have one or two musicians that they absolutely love. And we like to find some of the nitty-gritty details behind them, and kind of give you a trivia on who they are. A lot of it's good stuff, some of it bad, but in the end, you're, we leave you guessing, and then hopefully at the end,、uh, we play some pretty cool tunes for you. So it's、uh, it's a pretty you know live show, and that's where I spend most of my time these days, in addition to a few other programs. <laughs> yeah, that sounds cool, and it's always good to have you along. Coming up, 
the concept of online pharmacies and online sale of medication has catching on for years. With access to both online and offline dispensaries, pharmacies are now able to provide more options to consumers to choose based on the requirements and price. Recently, in some Chinese cities, people noticed that more offline drugstores have opened amid the growth of e-pharmacies. How widespread is this trend? What's more, it's no secret that smoking is bad for your health. Most people know smoking can cause cancer, but it can also cause a number of other diseases and can damage nearly every organ in the body, including the lungs, heart, blood vessels, reproductive organs, mouth, skin, eyes, and bones—you name it. <laughs> If you're a smoker, heavy or light, have you quit smoking already? Apparently, tobacco use has hit a record low in Shanghai. How has the city managed to make tobacco use go up in smoke? You can share with us your thoughts by rating and reviewing the show at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast, and you can send us voice questions to ezfmroundtable@foxmail.com to take part in the weekly heart-to-heart -heart segment. Now on Roundtable, have you noticed a trend that more pharmacies have opened in your neighborhood? While online medication purchases are gaining ground in China, some young entrepreneurs with medical backgrounds and connections in this field are eyeing opportunities for offline pharmaceutical retail. What are some challenges of running a pharmacy? Um, so tell us more based on your research. Are offline pharmacies spreading in China again? Well, first of all, we can totally see that in our neighborhoods there are more. Drug stores opening, right?、Mm. From my personal experience, it is.、Mm. And、um, however, if you ask the pharmacy operators, many of them say it's no longer profitable as before. Sometimes it's even hard to break even, and many have lost money during the pandemic. Well, people may be confused by this kind of a statement, but、um, but at least we can see from the numbers in Wuhan, Hubei Province, an entrepreneur called Yang Hai. He runs more than 30 chain drug stores, and he mentioned that now the number of pharmacies in Wuhan has doubled, and the density of pharmacies has saturated. In addition, Chen Che, who returned to Yingkou City, which is in Liaoning Province, in 2009, he has opened 13 pharmacies in the city so far, and. I think it's not very hard to understand in our daily lives. To the citizens, we of course go to the pharmacies more frequently in these years, right? But the business will also come up.、Um, but with more drugstores open, the supply will absolutely surpass the demand. Then I think this industry can be even more competitive. And in this case, it may be hard for these stores to profit.、Mm. Well, I think it's no secret that the Elderly、uh, demographic is expanding; it's growing. The over sixty-five is getting much bigger, and they are most likely the group that's going to be that receives more medication. I mean, I, me personally, I, I have seen a few pharmacies popping up in different areas, but I mean, for someone that doesn't really utilize the services that much, it's not necessarily a big deal to me. But I do see them kind of coming around. A little bit more, and I would imagine that it must be addressing some void that's going on with the、uh, you know the medication for them. But as I mentioned,、uh, the people over sixty-five. I mean, coming back to the states, they consume more healthcare than any other age group. 
Um, they account for about 40% of hospital mm. admissions and they stay longer and they account for half of the hospital beds. And this is uh, according to a study back in uh, 2019 uh, by the American Geriatric Society. Um, I'm not sure what it's like here in China in terms of the availability of GPs or geriatric physicians, but in the States, there's a shortage. And I don't think that there's any way to really have the amount of uh, doctors that you need to assess the amount of baby boomers and the amount of people over 65. So I'm, I'm just guessing that if it's in, in the States, we have this um, issue that's um, you know getting quite prevalent. I would imagine here in China, there's probably uh, doctors that probably need to be I guess, trained or specialized in mm. geriatrics because, I mean, when you are a physician, there's so many different areas that you can, you know, specialize in and there's just no way. I mean, judging by the numbers of the population, there's probably needs to be more doctors that need to be trained in, um, you know, the medication and what medications to give um, these patients. So I think the pharmacies popping up around everywhere is good. It's good definitely to have that, um, convenience of these stores, uh, or these places where you can get medication. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I, again, I'm not, I need, I would probably need to ask more questions on, mm. do they go in and just get whatever they want or are they being prescribed medication and they go out and get it from these particular pharmacies? How does that work? Yeah, so it depends on which kind of medication you are seeking for. Mm. So in China, there are several very important time nodes contribute to the growing number of pharmacies. It started with uh, 2017 as China began to fully separate medical treatment and drug sales. A highlight of this change is that a medical service fee has been put into place uh, to replace drug markups, registration, and treatment fees. Under this reform, the way you know patients get their medicines has begun to change. For example, some people they will get a diagnosis, medical treatment, and medicine prescription in hospitals as usual. While others, they will bring doctors' prescriptions to pharmacies to purchase medicines, forming a prescription outflow. And if you are wondering which pharmacy is qualified to give out such mm. prescriptions, and then I think in 2021, with the start of the dual-channel mechanism, that's a term, which means more and more qualified medical institutions and retail pharmacies, they have been included in the designated medical insurance, which can provide greater convenience for patients, which means that they can get uh, prescribed um, medicines from such um, drugstores. And what's more is about there are less restrictions on the distribution of pharmacies, because earlier when people are uh, sharing their information on the pop-up pharmacies is about they see there are so many drugstores pharmacies they are clustering together just yeah, on wasn't there one street or right. one block right I, I read that there was a restriction previously that like uh there couldn't be one within 500 meters of each other mm. but i think that has been lifted right yeah so back in 2021 uh, many places across the country they have mm. gradually removed the 500 meter limit for pharmacies which means um there used to be a law that 
banned more than three pharmacies in a 500 meter radius. And then the other one have been removed is that a 350 meter spacing distance requirement. And there are some other regulations in this regard. Mm. Because I think at the very beginning, these policies were in place to prevent pharmacies from clustering together and to balance medical resources. However, in real practice, this led to regional monopolies for sure. And maybe just one big chain drugstore can occupy all the resources and just like be there for one entire street. And definitely that drugstore won't be afraid of losing the traffic flow. Because if mm. you're the only one in the street in a neighborhood, then when people have the need, they will definitely come into your drugstore. But if you allow more drugstores to compete on one street, maybe in the long term, it will bring in healthy competition and then it will benefit local residents in the long run. Maybe that's one of the reasons why the policies were loosened one after another. Yeah, but I also think that with a lot of these different pharmacies that are um, emerging, there needs to be uh, qualified pharmacists that actually are there. Because again, we're talking about medicine and we're talking about individuals who are going to go in and get you know, uh, either prescription medication or other medication. And we need to have someone there that knows the condition of that particular person, because most people over the age of 65, they have a multitude of chronic conditions, you know, comorbidities and multimorbidities. And, you know, their organ function has deteriorated over the years, which is part of the natural aging process. And sometimes it's because they have certain uh, medical conditions. And so, I think that what you, we could possibly see if there are just so many of these and it's become, as you mentioned earlier, that it's tough to break even, right? Because right. there's just so many other ones around. And so it's, yeah, I think that there needs to be some type of stratification on the type of pharmacies that are coming up. Are these, are there going to be pharmacies that just offer over the counter medications or are there going to be ones that actually have a you know in in on-site uh pharmacist because i think that you know some sometimes these these people will need some type of medical advice to make sure that they're taking the right thing for the right condition otherwise you could have some you know some problems so Shun, what do you think what has made offline drugstores or pharmacies more popular than before and is making a strong comeback? Or do you think for so many entrepreneurs with medical backgrounds or connections in this particular field, they are eyeing opportunities to establish their own businesses, which means they would like to open their own pharmacies. So do you think, <laughs> what are some challenges of running a pharmacy? Is it that easy? Just as uh, what Tony was saying, that mm. one of the challenges I think is that the threshold of running a pharmacy is quite high because if you would like to run a pharmacy, then you have to have that kind of qualifications. Mm. Mm. And um, the main threshold for opening a pharmacy lies in the legal representatives or the person in charge of the enterprise who should have the qualifications of a licensed pharmacist. Mm. Mm. It is necessary to apply for a license such as like business license or a license for pharmaceutical trading. And um, generally, there should be three to five people working in a pharmacy and one of whom is a licensed traditional Chinese medicine pharmacist and the other is a licensed Western medicine pharmacist. That's according to the reports. 
And um, I think another one is that in recent years, the profit of these pharmaceutical stores are quite like um, limited, you know, mm. because mm. we know that some drugs in high demand are covered by the national healthcare insurance. And in that case, obviously, they cannot profit a lot from such kind of medicines. Mm. Um, and another one is that I think during the pandemic, people have already like developed a habit of wearing masks and um, sanitize a lot and washing their hands regularly. And I think that leads to the, you know, the incidence of common diseases such as colds, fevers and coughs have dropped. And um, in that way, the demand for medicines has decreased. Hmm. And I think, yeah, because one of my friends who lives in Beijing, he, he suffered from like hay fever or mm. he's allergic to like pollen. Yeah. And he told me that he felt so much better in these years because people are just wearing masks. <laughs> so everywhere he goes, he wears yeah. a mask. <laughs> yeah. And then like, in that case, he, he, he felt really better after everybody's wearing masks during this year. So I think that is also one of the reasons that, you know, people has less demands in medicines. Mm. Well, and uh, as you mentioned, it's, it's really important to have um, the qualified people. But again, if there's a pharmacy everywhere, then and I also feel a little bit uneasy putting entrepreneurship next to a pharmacy because mm. you have it's medicine. This is mm. something that's really, really it could give life or it could take it depending on, you know, how you how you take it, what you're prescribed, your knowledge of it and, and whatnot. So it, it, I think we have to be careful about opening up pharmacies and the type of um, pharmaceuticals that are there. I mean, some are have, you know, the quality of the type of medicine that you're getting and making sure that the whoever the pharmaceutical company that's putting the the medicine together, it's actually you know approved medicine and it's not in another entrepreneurial company just trying to, to make it big. So I think there's a lot of checks that need to be in play before these things open up because otherwise you're going to have some people that may be victims of, um, you know, just a, a place trying to make money as opposed to giving people uh, a service and a product that's going to uh, lengthen their lives. Yeah, and cost of investment is pretty high, mm. in my opinion, because for the conservative startup cost of opening a retail pharmacy, a person who ran an indie uh, pharmacy in a fourth-tier city like Inco. You said uh, fourth-tier city? Yeah. I don't think fourth, I've even been to a fourth-tier city. Yeah, so this person <laughs> is running a drugstore in this fourth-tier city called Inco, and uh, the drugstore is around 120 square meter in size. And that pharmacy costs at least 300,000 yuan. 300,000? rent. Okay. Yeah, or some 43,000 US dollars. And that's at a that's at a tier four city. So yes. at a tier one city. In Beijing, um, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen. <laughs> you can probably expect that number to be in the millions. Yeah, because you need, also need to take care of the decoration mm. and inventory costs. Which account and you got to pay your you got to pay your pharmacist you got to pay the TCM pharmacist yeah so yeah I, that makes sense that your uh, earnings will be about breaking even or 
possibly less. It's pretty hard, and I really appreciate how one insider described the current pharmaceutical retail market in the country. He described that scene in one sentence: "That is, large pharmaceutical chains are expanding across the country, seeking profit with the help of sufficient capital investment, while small pharmacies and entrepreneurs are struggling to survive in this competitive market." So. This opportunity sounds pretty good, but there are a lot of risks attached to this development. Or if you want to further expand your pharmacy, and if we go back to that very boring and old discussion, okay? So you know, in recent <laughs> years, we have seen the rapid development of online pharmacies. Yeah. Offline versus online, which is your preferred channel? And maybe you can offer me a third option. That is the new retail model, which is offline plus online. So, what's your answer? Well, again, I I take medicine very seriously. I I'm um, I have I'm from a family that was in is in medicine, and so I guess it's always important to go and see someone and talk about your condition. I mean, these days there are digital services, and if you are able to talk to someone. Then I think that that's good. If I'm older and I have conditions, I think it's even more serious. Where you really do need to make sure that you get the right medication for、uh, the right person for the right condition. So,、um, definitely being able to order medication online will be much more convenient. And, and once they have all of your information, I think it'll be pretty seamless, and you can have it delivered right to your door. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to wait in lines and all of that. So there are definite. Uh, perks to this、uh, e-pharmacy,、um, but if there's if your condition is quite special, and as I mentioned earlier, there are people who have multiple conditions,、um, and if that progresses and gets worse or whatever, you may need to have different、um, medications. So, I, I'm an advocate of going to the site, even though it may take more time and it's a bit more inconvenient. It could be life saving. Yeah. Me as well, and it depends on what kind of a disease that I have. If、mm. it's just some common diseases like cold and、yeah. like、um, coughs, I would absolutely get some medicines online because it's just so much more convenient, and you can just scroll down the screen and see all of the meds that is available there,、right. and clicking in to see all of the descriptions of this medicine and.、Um, But that's for you, Yushun. You're a young guy. I mean, if I was like 65, it would be difficult for me to look at my phone and like read this and、uh, that. So I'm thinking for the elderly people, it、mm. would be much unless they have someone in their family that can do that for them,、right. and that would make life easier for them and possibly their parents or whatever. But、uh, yeah, I just think that for us young people, the e option might be easier. But for the older people, and there's more of them. And it would be more convenient for them to be the e do the e pharmacy, but it might even be better for them to go in because they have all of these conditions, right? But to be honest,、um, older people they also struggle to find the correct medicines in the offline stores. To be honest, because they have to get in there and ask the pharmacist. <laughs> And what, like I, I, I'm getting a cold. Which one I should get? Yeah. Sometimes they probably get tricked by that. Absolutely. If I'm a pharmacist, I'm not going to give you anything because it's like, wait a minute, what conditions do you have? You know, because it's liability, right?、Yeah. I don't want to get lose my license because I gave you something and then you had this, 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 this condition,、mm -hmm. and then it's like, oh my goodness, I should have asked that question, right? So it's that liability. 
that um, you know it's a bit scary. So yeah, either online or offline is still an issue for right, right. They, d- distributing medication. They, they both have their own advantages, I have to say. Yeah, pros and cons, just like every coin has two sides. Of course, convenience is always welcome. Uh, you were listening to Roundtable coming up next. Fewer and fewer grown-ups in Shanghai are smoking cigarettes. Stay tuned. Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about current events in China from different perspectives? Then tune in to Roundtable, where East meets West, and understanding is the goal. It's the hour of Roundtable with myself, Hong Shan, Yu Shun, and Tony Reid. Recent media reports suggest that tobacco use has hit a record low in Shanghai. What has the city done right to bring the number down, and why are more people quitting smoking? Please give us more details. Yes, according to an official statement released by Shanghai government's official WeChat account on February 28th, just 19.4 percent of adults in Shanghai were still addicted to smoking cigarettes and. Smoking rates in the city's no tobacco zones fell to a record low of 12.3 percent. Adult smoking rates were lower than the 2030 target. That's according to the Shanghai government's official WeChat account. In 2016, the Health China 2030 campaign aimed for a 20 percent reduction in outdoor smoking among those people aged over 15 by the year 2030. And specifically, we can see that the measures. Are like citizens found smoking, including e-cigarette, in public in Shanghai is fined 200 yuan. That's about 29 <laughs> U.S. dollars. While establishments that allow smoking indoors are fined up to 30,000 yuan. How do you assess the smoking rates in the no tobacco areas? I mean, I just think that this is really that's a because have you seen an e Sig smoker. These guys are stealthy. I mean, you could、mm. have dinner with them. You could look down at your plate to eat something, and they can pull it out and smoke. And when you look up, the smoke is gone.、Yeah. You don't even know that they're smoking. So I don't see how they can really stop these e-cigars. I just—they're just really, really—and the smell's not that.、Um, it's not too bad. It normally has some type of fragrance. It smells、right. pretty good. But the smokers, I would imagine that they are probably not having a good year, or I guess couple of years, because he、uh, said twelve percent, twelve point three percent drop because they're being fined by、uh, by being smoke by smoking in certain locations. So I don't know. I think that、uh, they will probably circumvent. As as smokers normally do. I mean, I went to the bathroom today, and for some reason, I smelled cigarette smoke in the bathroom. Really? And、uh, yeah, and it, it just. I think that this is also a way because there's no cameras there, right? So、mm. it's hard to really <laughs> to stop people from smoking in the bathroom, which happens a lot. So I don't know. Maybe they're not using these no smoking zones. Maybe they're finding other ones because smokers are gonna. Do what they have to do to to、uh, get that nicotine buzz. I mean, that's been my experience anyway. Yeah, and smoking is still a huge problem in China. If we draw on data from Sinatec, which is a tech information platform backed by Sina.com, China is the world's largest tobacco consumer, where about 287 million grown-ups smoked cigarettes back in two. 
2019. That's over four times higher than in Indonesia, the second largest consumer. And、uh, you know, smoking has caused over one million deaths annually in the country. So it's a very serious problem. And we have been informed with regard to the downsides of smoking since we were a child. You can even see the scary pictures on the package <laughs> of. A bag of cigarettes, yeah, right? Especially in foreign countries, right? Yeah, if you're trying to eat dinner or something, don't walk by one of those places because yeah, there's they have some gnarly dyke organs and cadavers that are actually、yeah. on these things. But you know, somehow it still doesn't stop people from smoking. And they just look at the pictures and go, "Wow, that's pretty bad." I'll take three of these, and then they walk out. You know, so <laughs> it still doesn't you know help with the、um, the nicotine buzz. It really doesn't. Yeah, and also as you said, these kind of、uh, pictures and also these、um, new regulations and policies. I think at least they are there, right? They are reminding <laughs> people that it's bad and it's harmful to smoke.、Mm-hmm. Better than nothing. <laughs> yeah, better than nothing. And that's my other question. Like, how do you find someone that's smoking? I mean, I know that there's certain instant. According to this report, I read that some institutions where or places where you go where they're smoking, then that entire building will be fined,、mm-hmm. right? And that's kind of a way where that can mitigate smokers because the place doesn't want to pay that for that fine. But outside of that,、uh, do you just are there? Is there a smoking police? Like they see you smoking and they run over and they say, "We're going to find you. We're going to give you a ticket." Or is it like a、uh, a camera that catches you because people wear masks and hats and stuff? So it's like,、mm. how do you stop? How do you catch these smokers? I think there are signs in indoor <laughs> venues,、uh-huh. and which means like if you're smoking indoor, you'll be fined.、Uh-huh. What's more, you say the smoking police. I think everyone, each individual, you know, <laughs> right, absolutely, in that building is the police, him or herself, because like no one wants to take in that secondhand smoke. And if you really hate this phenomenon, then you will be the one to report for sure. And、mm. I think another worrying issue is that as many people they are trying. To kick a smoking habit, maybe they are turning to electronic cigarettes,、yeah. you know, vape pens and other non-disposable and disposable vaping devices, as a way to ease the transition from a traditional cigarette to not smoking at all. However, you have to aware that e-cigarettes <laughs> heat nicotine as well, flavoring and other chemicals to create an aerosol. That you inhale, so it's dangerous and harmful as well.、It、makes it really hard to kick the habit because it just smells and tastes so much better than the traditional stuff. <laughs> and you know what? What is ironic is that people may just smoke under the sign of, of, yeah, of these kind of no smoking, right? right? And and when you're trying to stop them, they they will think that you are just too picky and hard to deal with. But、mm. I think with all of these fines there. The, the the store owner will be afraid of these kind of fines, and they will just you know complying to these kind of rules, because as Huang Shan said, everybody can be the smoking police, and you can、right. report to the numbers on the sign, and、um, of course they will be fined. Or they can just go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and no matter what, you can come up with your own solution. That brings us to the end of today's roundtable. Thank you so much for your company. You can find us on Apple Podcast at Roundtable China. Thank you, Yushun and Tony, for joining the show. See you next time. 